Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. We are so happy that you have decided to join us. Hopefully, you will find the next few minutes challenging and refreshing as we consider together how God is asking us to respond to His grace. If you are listening because you are unable to join us at our physical location, thank you for keeping in step with us, and we will look forward to seeing you in person next Sunday. If you are joining us from outside of Anchorage, then please drop us a line and let us know where you are listening in from. We would love the opportunity to connect with you. If you are exploring faith for the first time or just trying to figure out what Awaken is about, please don't hesitate to drop us a line and introduce yourself. We welcome any question you might have about life, the Christian faith, or Awaken Church. May God be with you as you listen. I just want to introduce R.C. Uh, not only did he uh, build our stable for the Christmas Eve service, and I'm, you know, he's an amazing carpenter, but uh, R.C. really is a student of the Word of God, and I think you will really enjoy uh, hearing from him this morning. So, enjoy. So much pressure. They say never meet your heroes. Use your imagination with me, if you will, this morning. Let's pretend you wake up in the perfect home. You have everything you would want. You have the perfect yard. You have the perfect neighbor. This has cost you nothing. It's all there for your pleasure and enjoyment. It's there. You can live there forever. You don't need to do anything except just kind of wander around, keep the place up. It's yours with one simple rule. Don't eat from that tree. How much simpler could that be? You've got everything else you need. You've got plenty of food, water, fellowship. You're comfortable. Why would you even need to worry about that tree? I know none of you people would worry or even touch that tree. Because you're good Christian people, you wouldn't let something like that get in the way of having this beautiful gift that you've been given. Or let's say maybe in the back of your farm, there's a burning bush, as there are. And God talks to you out of the burning bush, as he does. And he tells you, I want you to go do this thing. You wouldn't dream of arguing about it. You know that God knows you better than yourself. God tells you you have the abilities and the attributes to go carry out this mission he sent you on. You are going to snap to, yes sir, three bags full, and away you go. No questions asked, right? You wouldn't dream of arguing with him because you're good Christian people. You've got the spirit within you. You've got the Bible to work from. You know that you have a relationship with God. Why would God lead you astray? Why would you begin to argue? Or let's say you and your neighborhood decide to go out for a hike. And along your hike, the leader of the group says, you know, we're going to stay here for a little bit. I'm going to go climb up on that hill. I'm going to get some more instruction. I'm going to get a better lay of the land. We're going to figure out what the next step is. I'm going to be up there for a little bit. Don't let the weather concern you. I'll be right back. And whatever you do, don't worship anything while I'm gone. Just wait. Now, I know 
Every one of you, regardless of what the rest of the crowd was doing, would have nothing to do with throwing your jewelry in a pot and the golden calf that leaps out of it. You just don't do that. You know God's got you covered. You know there's no reason to fear. You're going to do what you've been commanded. You're going to live your life for God. You're not going to get questioning or concerned about the events going on around you. You're going to follow that one simple rule you've been given. We want to look back at the people in the Bible and the events that happened and these examples we have and think that we've got the Spirit of God in us. We're smarter. We're better. We're better prepared that whatever God asks us, we're going to do. We would never fall into those traps of eating the fruit or arguing with the burning bush or being scared of the people around us such that we would worship some golden calf. That's just nonsense. We wouldn't do that. But the fact is, we do. Because we aren't any better than they are. We are those people. We have these examples, but it doesn't change the fact that this is what we are. Romans chapter 7 and verse 21, Paul puts this conflict into perspective. Paul tells us that there are things that he wants to do that he doesn't do. There's things that he doesn't do. Wait a minute, he wants to do that he doesn't do. Yeah, things that he doesn't do that he... Uh, I was never good at algebra. <laughs> Paul says there's things I do that I don't want to do, and there's things I don't want to do that I do because I have these warring spirits within me. I have the natural man that is residual from my birth. I have the Spirit of God that is given to me in my salvation, and those two Spirits are in conflict, and Paul knows that if he follows the sinful man, it leads to death. If he follows God, it leads to life, and he's in, eternal, he's in continuous conflict about what to do. And Paul says in Romans, 20, or sorry, Romans 7, verse 21, I find that there is this evil present in me, the one who wants to do good. Paul wants to do good, but the evil nature that he still contains implores him to do things that are not what he should be doing, implore him to ignore the one simple rule for whatever the situation is that God puts him in. And Paul stops and says, what am I going to do? How am I going to deal with that? What's going to save me from this body of death? And the answer is thanks be to God. Because God's spirit within us is stronger. Yes, we're still going to make mistakes, but God provides the path and the redemptive uh, opportunity for us that we can live eternally with God, not be stuck in a body of death that leads to eternal destruction. We want to think we would do better, but we wouldn't. So e even as believers, we're no better than the ones we read about. We're constantly tempted. And we constantly want to follow our golden calf, whatever form it may take. And we could stop today right there, call it a day, go to lunch. We'd have a lesson, right? But I promised Levi I'd talk about Gideon. So turn to Judges chapter 6 with me in your pad or your Bible. Or, and I lost my marker, so it's going to take me a moment. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. There we go. 
I had to learn that in sixth grade. I think most of us are familiar with the story of Gideon. We have the slaying of idols, we have the fleece, we have the division of soldiers, we have going into battle with lamps and jars and horns, because when I watch all the military movies on TV, that's what they go into battle with, right? Lamps and jars and whistles. But I think what's, and, and it's, it is an amazing story of deliverance right there in that. But I think what I want to get into today is we need to look at where Gideon was when God approached him. And what God did with Gideon to grow him to the position where Gideon was able to do what God commanded. Because that's what we need. We're going to fail. We're going to fall. We're going to violate the rules because we have this conflict in us. And the only thing that's going to keep us or allow us to get better, to grow in this Christian walk, is going to be God working in us. And so we're going to look at how God works on Gideon. Judges chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And what did it get them? It gets them the second half of the verse. And God gives them over into the hands of the Midians for seven years. That given over into the hands of Midians has got a lot of backstory and baggage with it. Basically, the Midianites would come, and for a period of seven years, two to three times a year at harvest season, the Midianites would attack Israel. And they would take whatever crops there were, they would take their property that they had built out of their houses, they would steal their cattle, they took their implements of war and self-defense, and the Israelites would hide in caves and under the rocks, literally, to avoid being assaulted by the Midians. The Midians were, multiple times a year over the course of seven years, literally coming and taking Israel's lunch. And Israel got upset about it. And so in verse 7 of chapter 6, we see now that it came about that the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of, what the Midian, on account of Midian or what the Midianites were doing. The Israelites got tired of going hungry and they complained. Have we not seen that before? The Israelites getting hungry and complaining? And so how does God respond? Look at verses 8 through 10 with me. Since the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. Now that prophet is not referenced to Gideon. That is, there, there's some intermediary character that shows up in these verses before, I'm sorry, after the Israelites complain and before Gideon comes on the scene and God sends this prophet to the sons of Israel and the prophet says to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, I'm sorry, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. It was I who brought you up from Egypt and delivered you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. God gave the Israelites one simple rule. I'm going to put you in this place. I'm going to give you their land. I'm going to move the people out of the way. But the one simple rule you need to follow is don't fear their gods. And that's a simple thing. This God that had delivered them miraculously, they had seen the arm of the Lord working on their behalf through the years. Their fathers had told them the stories, yet they decide, I'm going to be scared of the gods of the people around me instead of reverencing the God that has delivered me in such a great and mighty way. 
Again, that's our own lives at work. We see the things around us that make us scared, and we start to fear God, sorry, fear man more than we fear God. Why do I even bring it up? You guys would never do that sort of thing, would you? You're always having a proper fear of God. You're never letting other gods get into your life. Let me give you a simple working definition of an idol. An idol for us is anything that gets between us and our relationship with God. If you're blessed with family or friends or children, you know that in the back of your mind, regardless of what you're doing, the relationship is always present. You know that you've got a wife, you know that you've got a, or a husband, you know that you've got children. That is always present. God's asking the same thing of us in our relationship with him. It's not that we've got to be in church every time the doors are open. It's not that we've got to be on our knees in prayer every minute of the day. It's not that we can't enjoy the life that God's given us. It's that God wants us to make sure that our relationship with him is always foremost in our minds when we're doing this so that we can be having the relationship he wants us to have that leads to edification of the body that we're part of, that leads to glorifying God, which is our purpose here on earth, is it not? Otherwise, the moment we get saved, we go. The reason we're here is to glorify God, and it starts with maintaining that relationship with him. And anything that gets in between that becomes an idol. If you happen to be staring out your living room window and see somebody taking a bath across the street and think, hmm, that's better than what I got. See, we have idolatry, which quickly turns in that case to adultery for those of you that are not familiar with the life of David. If we decide that we're not gonna come to church next Sunday because we're gonna stay home and watch the Super Bowl, <laughs> I'm gonna leave that to you guys. Israel decides that the fear of their enemies and the worship practices of their neighbors is more interesting than what God has done and said. And so they start following those gods and fearing those gods. And what's, I'm sorry. And then we come to Gideon. Judges 6 and verse 12. Where did it go? There it is. The angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and says to him, Let's talk about angel of the Lord for a second. Traditionally, that is accepted as the pre-incarnate occurrence of Christ. Okay? And I'm going to work from that assumption. The angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and said, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Okay? If you're not laughing at that, we need to read some more. Because look at where God finds Gideon. Find. Find is not the right word. God knows Gideon from the day he's born, before he was born. But God approaches Gideon, and Gideon is in a circumstance. Mm -hmm. Gideon is threshing wheat at the wine press. And for those of you that are not agriculturally minded, I'm not, but I read a little bit. Basically, you, don't, you, you have a wine press located at the bottom of a hill where you cut the grapes off, you bring them down the hill because it's easier that way into a cool spot, and then you tramp the grapes over a wooden floor and the juice falls down through the floor and you collect it. When you have wheat, 
you haul the wheat to a higher place where the wind can catch the chaff that when you throw the grain up and then the grain falls down, the chaff gets blown away. And you do it on a concrete floor that's traditionally pretty large so that the cattle pulling the sledge around can beat the grain up as they go. If you're threshing wheat at the wine press, there's something going on because you don't have the room, you don't have the equipment, and you're in the wrong place geographically. But the reason Gideon is at the wine press threshing out his wheat is because he doesn't have much wheat to begin with, and he's fearful that somebody's going to see him throwing the wheat up into the air for the wind to catch, which means the Midianites are looking to steal Gideon's lunch, and Gideon is in fear, and Gideon is at the wine press doing this work. And so to get the phrase where the angel of the Lord comes and says, O valiant warrior, um, not so much. This isn't somebody that's mentally prepared to go and do. And then Gideon gives a response to the Lord when he says this to him in verses 13 through 18. Gideon says, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our enemies are, I'm sorry, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. And the Lord looked at him and said, remember when your dad used to do that? I don't know if your dad had glasses. The Lord looked at him and said, go in your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? There's the command. Go in your strength and do what I've told you to do. Have I not sent you? Gideon is having his burning bush moment. And what's Gideon do with it? Gideon says, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest of my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks to me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And the angel of the Lord said, I will remain until you return. God approaches Gideon and says, this is what I want you to do. You have the strength to do it. Go and do it. And what's Gideon do? He whines about it. I'm not prepared I'm not popular, I need a sign, I'm the youngest of my family, why me? When God commands us to do something, is that our first response, why me? Should we not be encouraged, affirmed? Should we not glory in the fact that God has asked us to do something, regardless of how small it might be? Gideon's being asked to go and save his people from the Midianites, and he's gonna whine about it. Somehow he thinks he's going to throw God an argument that God hasn't prepared for. Somehow we think that we know better what's going on in our lives than God does. We're going to surprise him with some new fact or our great oratory skills or our excellent arguments that we're going to throw at him. I can tell you from experience, if that's how you're going to deal with God commanding you to do something, it is not going to go well. And for Gideon, it's not going well. Getting in thinks he's not capable to do it. But God, as Paul would later say, instead of condemning Gideon to a death 
spiritually, because Gideon's not willing to step up and do what God says, God gives Gideon an opportunity. So God acquiesces to Gideon's request and lets a meal be presented. And look what happens to it in verses 20 and 21. The angel of the Lord said to him, so Gideon goes and kills an animal, prepares it, cooks it, um, brings out bread and the broth that's in it, or that it was in. And the angel of the Lord says to Gideon, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. And the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed. Do you see what just happened there? If the angel of the Lord is Christ, and Gideon brings an animal that he's cut up, and the bread with it, unleavened bread with it, and the broth for it, God says, sorry, Christ says, put it on this rock and pour out the broth on it and God consumes it with fire. Put your sacrifice on the altar, pour the blood over it and God consumes it with fire. Is that not a type of the sacrifice that God called the people of Israel to do when he talked to Moses? And what's really awesome about that is this is the pre-incarnate Christ giving a demonstration of what he will do with his own body in the sacrifice he makes on the cross for the redemption of all believers. We've got the pre-incarnate Christ showing the example of himself in his sacrifice for our salvation hundreds of years before it actually happens. I find that amazing symbol I hope Gideon got it. I'm not sure that he did from what we see. Matthew 29, I'm sorry, Matthew 12 and verse 39. Matthew 12, 39. Christ says, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, but none will be given but the sign of Jonah the prophet. We like signs. We want to see something that tells us directions or give us aff- gives us affirmation or makes us feel good about ourselves. How many people drove to, wor- to, <laughs> drove to work, drove to church today? How many of you saw signs on the way? How many of you followed every single sign you saw? Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> That's not what we do. We want to see signs, but Christ knows the futility of signs. An evil and adulterous generation will want a sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah, which is the fact that Christ will be crucified, be in the grave, and resurrected. And here we have the sign of Christ's sacrifice given to Gideon. And Gideon, like us, is still not getting it. But we wouldn't ignore signs God gives us now, would we? We'd never deny God's calling in our lives. And we're always sensitive to the demonstrations of his faithfulness as we walk with him, don't, aren't we? We always see that. No, we don't. We're just like Gideon. Sorry if I'm depressing you, but that's the fact of the matter. We are the same kind of people. We're in the same kind of positions. We're denying the one simple rule for whatever the circumstance is we're in today that God gives us to overcome that circumstance. Just like Gideon. 
So in chapter 6 and verse 25 through 27, God gives Gideon another command, another opportunity to demonstrate faithfulness. 25, there it is. Now on the same night, that's the same night that God did the the sacrifice demonstration. The same night, the Lord said to Gideon, take your father's bull and a second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah pole that is beside it and burn, I'm sorry, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner and take the second bull and offer the bull as an offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Pretty straightforward. You're going to demonstrate your solidarity with me, Gideon. This is God talking. By going up and destroying the facilities of idol worship that your people have adopted because of your fear of the people around you. And lo and behold, it's his father's idol. And so Gideon does exactly as God said. Gideon goes up on the hill, he pulls down the altar, he cuts down the Asherah pole, he kills the bulls, he arranges the wood and creates the fire and sacrifices the bulls, just like God said to do in the middle of the night. Because the fact is, Gideon's Gideon's so close. He wants to do what God tells him to do. Paul, I want to do these things, but I don't. Gideon does it at night. Gideon's got the personal willpower to do this, but he doesn't have the spiritual willpower or the spiritual strength to do it in the way God wanted it done. He want, God wants everybody to see Gideon tear down the altar so that everybody understands Gideon is working on God's behalf. But what he what does is he does it at night. And he thinks he's going to do it with his 10 slaves that he brings along. And he's going to run off and nobody will associate it with him. Just the altars will be torn down, the poles will be cut down, the bulls will have been burnt up. And everybody will be upset but not know who. Not know who. Well, what happens? In the next verses, we find out that the townspeople come to Joash, Gideon's father, who owned the altar and the bulls, and says, we know your son did this. Bring him out here. We're going to kill him. And what does Joash do? See, Joash, for what we know of him in this circumstance, Joash gets it. Because Joash says, no. I know it was my son that did this, but I'm not going to give him to you. And more than that, if you think your gods are so powerful, then they're going to be able to defend themselves. I don't need to defend these gods before the true God. Joash delivers Gideon in the circumstance where God had already planned on delivering Gideon, but Gideon only did it most of the way. He missed out. So Gideon misses out on the blessing of God redeeming him, so his father has to redeem him. uh, Sorry, Joash is getting what God's trying to do. Gideon... He's close, but he's not quite there. So God moves on to the next step of how he deals with Gideon. Chapter 6 again in verse 34. Excuse me. 34. Hiding in the crease. There it is. So the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon, and Gideon blows a trumpet, 
and the uh, Burzrites, I'm sorry if you're part of that clan, I didn't mean to offend you, were called together to follow him. And Gideon sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they also called together to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. Gideon is assembling this army on God's behalf, 33,000 strong. And Gideon thinks he knows the plan now. He understands what God's asking him to do. Somehow God's going to use these 33,000 men with Gideon to go assault the Midianites and redeem Israel from what's going on. And then Gideon pulls out the fleece. Gideon is so close. He's almost there. But then he says, you know, God, I see the plan. I understand you've asked me to do it. And in his burning bush moment, Gideon says, I want you to prove to me. Remember Moses and the stick and the snake? We got Gideon in the fleece and the dew. Gideon says, God, I'm going to put this piece of goat hair down on the threshing floor. And, and forgive me if I get this out of order, but you're going to make the goat hair dry, but the ground is going to be wet. And that'll prove that you want me to do what you want me to do. And God does it. And then the next day, in verse 39, Gideon says, to God, do not let your anger burn against me that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. This has nothing to do with faith. This is all about fear. I personally have gone to God and said, look, I see an option here. I think this is what you want me to do. Would you confirm it? I'm not putting myself on a pedestal with this. I'm just saying and God gives me the answer, and I'm like, got it. And we run with that. I've used it buying a house. I've used it in my other circumstance in my life. We see that same thing going on when Abraham sends his servant to find what turns out to be Rebecca for Isaac, right? God, you've put me in this position. I've given this, been given this command. This is what I expect to happen to find the person that you want for Abraham's son. And God delivers it. And that's a prayer out of faith. That's a prayer out of expectation that God is going to act the way God says he was going to act and the reason I'm here. Gideon says, I'm going to throw this fleece out because as we read the fullness of the text, we find out that Gideon's not, still not sure about this whole plan. So Gideon does the fleece the first time, wet fleece, dry ground, and then God, he says to God, don't smite me. He knows how serious this is. He says, don't smite me with anger, but let's try it again, and this time we do wet fleece and dry ground, or whichever way that goes. This is not testing out of faith. This is testing out of fear, because Gideon's still afraid that he's gonna have to go do what God's told him to do the thing that over and over he's demonstrated he's not willing to. Whatever God tells him to do, he give, God gives him the one simple thing, and Gideon's not willing to do it. Gideon's going to go into battle against this numberless horde because God's commanded him to, and he's going to go with 33,000 men, and I think he's asking God, is this really the best plan you can, can come up with? And God says, you know, you're right, Gideon. I think I can do better. Tell them if they're scared, they can go home. 
And what do we see? 22,000 of the troops go home. And I can see Gideon standing there going, whoa, 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 whoa. This math did not work the way I was expecting. And why is God doing it? Because God's got to get Gideon to the point that Gideon understands this is God doing it. Not Gideon doing it. And so Gideon says, okay, this still doesn't look quite right. I'm giving you a little, uh, my interpretation here. And he says, but okay, I think I can do this. And God says, no, you can't. I need to change it one more time. Take them down to the river and let's see how they drink. And the army goes from 10,000 men down to 300. And I think Gideon's head's about to explode right here because, wait, I had 33,000, I argued with God, and now I'm down to 300. It's not working the way I'd hoped. But Gideon finally decides he's going to accept God's command. And I've got to ask the question here. Is he accepting God's command out of faith or out of fatalism? Follow me with those two words for a minute. Because if he's going to accept God's words out of faith, he's going to stand strong, know that God's going to deliver him, act in the faith, in the insurance, I'm sorry, in the assurance that Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us faith is based on. And he's going to go do what God commands him, knowing that God's going to do what God promised. Where I think Gideon is at, and if it sounds like I'm beating on the boy, I'm sorry, this is how I see it. I think Gideon is willing to go now, but he's willing to go in fatalism. Okay, God says go, so I'm going to go through the motions of going. I'm going to gather my 300. I'm going to divide them up. I'm going to give them their lamps and their uh, bowls and their trumpets. And I guess somehow we defeat them. And if I die, I die. How often do we look at what God tells us to do? God gives us the one simple command for the circumstance, and instead of stepping out in faith, knowing that God will do what he's told me to do, I step out in fatalism. Okay, God says it, I guess I'll try it. Do you see where you end up with two separate conclusions? You don't end up with, I'm sorry, you do end up with an unsure faith, a lot of personal questions about your relationship with God, and no testimony. If you're stepping out in faithfulness, you end up with spiritual growth in yourself, an improved relationship with God, a testimony for the body around you. And what's the goal of all this? Glorifying God through what God's done through you. I think Gideon is still in fatalism, not in faith. But it does come to a conclusion. Gideon attacks the Midianite horde with 300 men that are carrying lamps and jars and blowing trumpets. No swords around, because the Midianites have taken those years before. And Gideon blows the horn, the Israelites break the jars, the lights are shown, the Midianites are thrown into confusion, and what do they do? They slaughter each other. God does the work. And it's no credit to Gideon. 
Gideon is the focus of the story, but Gideon is not the hero of the story. And we find out that later on in following chapters how Gideon fails in his own walk again. Gideon didn't get what God was trying to teach him. He worked through the circumstance and God was allowed, allowed, God still did what God promised he was gonna do. And I'm gonna dare say almost in spite of Gideon. Gideon had, we are given, every day in every circumstance, that one simple thing that God tells us, do this, because I am doing this. Don't eat the fruit, because I am giving you perfection. Don't argue with the burning bush, because I know you and what I expect of you, and you are capable of it. Don't sacrifice to anything. The sacrifice has already been made. But we choose to eat, we choose to argue, we choose to sacrifice because we're no different than how God created all those other people before us. God sends his judges through the book of Judges to provide an example that turns the hearts of Israel back to God when they would otherwise be falling away. And in the end, God still works through Gideon such that Gideon is able to inspire 300 men to follow him into what seems like a hopeless, uh, impossible battle. If we are doing what God tells us to do, then we are increasing our relationship. We're edifying the body. We're glorifying God. But we still live in fear of how this is going to work out. We're no better than Adam or Moses or Gideon. We may think we wouldn't eat the fruit or that we wouldn't argue, we wouldn't cast the idol, we wouldn't hide in the wine press, but we do. As a closing thought, I want to give you Romans 8, if you want to turn there and follow along. Romans 8, verse 11. Paul has a lot to say in that chapter. There's some great high points. Verse 11 says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul's following up on what he said a few verses before. I'm in conflict between the spirit of God within me and the spirit of death within me, and I keep tripping up. I'm not doing what I want or I'm doing what I don't want and God is there to deliver me. And Paul reaffirms that point by pointing out that if God can raise Christ from the dead, he can raise you from the dead, both spiritually and physically. God in his infinite mercy chose to put his spirit into the hearts of believers that we may know the one simple rule for whatever the situation is that God gives us as the situations arise. Thank you again for listening. It is a joy to be able to share God's truth with you. Hopefully you found this teaching helpful to your understanding of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in today's world. And hopefully you are inspired to take a further step of faith. Please let us know how we can be praying for you as you continue your journey. If you live in the Anchorage area, you are welcome to join us any Sunday. And we have an Awaken 101 event every six weeks. And this is also a great way to find out more about our church. 
please sign up for that event by going to the events tab at our website, awakenalaska.com, and looking for Awaken 101. Feel free to share this podcast with your friends, and we will see you next week.